DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Gil Bailey, who is the founder of the Cornerstone Forum and a member of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars and the College of Fellows of the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. He is the author of God's Gamble, The Gravitational Power of Crucified Love. With Gil Bailey, we go inside the pages of The Apocalypse of the Sovereign Self, Recovering the Christian Mystery of Personhood, published by Angelico Press. Gil, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It was just wonderful being able to dive into the pages of The Apocalypse of the Sovereign Self. I found it to be so provocative and also very compelling. It's one of those kind of books that causes you to look at things through different, maybe clear lenses. Does that make sense? Well, I, I hope so. That flatters me, but that was my intent. It's a uh, complex problem we face, but I tried to lay it out in a way that would be at least interesting to the reader. Now, I should bring out the full name, including the subtitle, The Apocalypse of the Sovereign Self, Recovering the Christian Mystery of Personhood. Could you break that open for folks and and help them understand why this is such an important subject right now? Well, first of all, before you get to the two, really two halves of the book, the first part, The Apocalypse of the Sovereign Self, and the second part, Recovering the Christian mystery, personally. We're in a civilizational crisis, and it's a political and historical crisis, a deeper level, it's a moral and spiritual crisis. And my friend and mentor, Rene Girard, summed it up in one of their books when he wrote, No one takes the trouble to reflect uncompromisingly on the enigma of a historical situation that is without precedent, the death of all culture. Now, that's a sweeping statement, but it's like statements made by Benedict XVI and von Balthasar and, and others. It recognizes the unique depth of the crisis that we've been entering into for a long time. I think one of the chief features of this crisis is that we have failed to recognize and, and do justice to the very thing that sets us apart, sets our human beings apart from the from the whole created order, namely, namely our religious longing. It's a longing which cannot be extinguished. It's, in, it's the only question of orienting towards its fulfillment or wandering it on idols. And in our time, as faith has receded, many are eager to genuflect before any ideological faction that promises to relieve the boredom of not having a real religion. So that's the situation we face. And in the first part of the book, I try to draw it out in chapters that are, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic, 
I I have a law degree and I never practiced law, but I began reading the Western canon many, many years ago. So the way to make this crisis intelligible and, and easy to recognize is I lay it out in chapters where I talk about people like Bob Dylan and Teresa Blitzu and Flannery O'Connor and Virginia Woolf and Descartes and Rousseau and Nietzsche and T.S. Eliot and Freud and all these. But in each of these chapters, I try to tease out one of the facets of the spiritual crisis. And in the second half of the book, there's the extended meditation on something. I mean, the way to summarize it is from uh, Romano Guardini wrote mid-20th century, a book strikingly entitled The End of the Modern World. And in it, he said something that summarizes the second half of the book. Well, it actually connects the first half and the second half. And I'm going to quote it to you. He said, the knowledge of what it means to be a person is inextricably bound up with the faith of Christianity. An affirmation and cultivation of the personal can endure for a time, perhaps, after faith has been extinguished. But gradually, they too will be lost. So the knowledge of what it means to be a person inextricably bound up with Christianity, the word person came into our vocabulary, our intellectual vocabulary, when Tertullian defined the Trinity as, as uh, three persons and one God. So the word felt and the word person are not only not synonymous, they are antonyms in a way. A person called in sin. Uh, it's, the, the self is an autonomous creature uh, who regards the will and our essential, our essential component of this being. And uh, that whole triumph of will to coin a phrase, not to coin a phrase, but to pick up on a phrase that associated with Nietzsche and Hitler. We think everything depends on our will. And I don't ever quote in front of me, but, but in the Casey decision, I think it was 1992, the uh, Supreme Court said in the majority opinion that everyone has the right to choose their own reality. To define reality. That's Nietzsche. That's that, Nietzsche, of course. Right, that's yeah. Nietzsche. But it but now it's it's become part of our it, it's not, it's what most it's what a lot of people believe. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have transgender nonsense and who knows what else. But you can just make it up as you go along. if it's if your reality is entirely up to you to determine by an act of will. And it's unbelievable what comes of that. And what we have to understand is that we are not, the world does not conform to our will. We conform to our calling. We are called and sent. So anyway, the crisis we're living in is a crisis that became cultural with Nietzsche and Hitler and so on. But now it's become conventional in the sense that triumph of the will is everywhere. 
it's it won't triumph, of course, and it degradation of how real personhood to be a person is to be called in sin. And I think it's imperative we understand the predicament that we're in. And I think that's really important, Gil. I think for most in the culture today, for several generations at the very least, if not many more behind that, we've never had the types of conversations in our formation, our educational venues about this particular subject. I mean, you you spoke of a great friendship you had with Rene Girard, an important figure, philosopher, teacher, Stanford, and some would say a theologian. I know that Bishop Barron referred to him as uh, one day he may be considered, as he said, a father of modern theology because of what he described as that mimic theory that we as individuals, and not necessarily as persons, because there's that distinction between the, the individual and what it is to be a person. And you knew him very well, that whole understanding of, as some would say, the mimic theory. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it was a great privilege to, to know him and he, he spends with him for decades. Uh, and I think his work will take a while, like all great thinkers, it takes a while to sort itself out. The first take on Gillard is that it's all about violence and and uh, imitation. And of course, in some way it is. And my first book was all about that. But there's that, so much more to it. And one of the things I tried to do in this book is to, is to expand the understanding of Gerard's work and to show the internal sympathy with, as a matter of fact, his favorite theologians are the same as mine. It was John Paul II, Benedict von Balthazar, even though von Balthazar had some complaints about Rene's early work. And that's before the real theological implications came out in his later book. But his, he had great affection for John Paul II, and especially for Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, uh, but also Durubin and, and so on. So I try to integrate Rene's work with these theologians, and I think it helped fill out the deep Catholic understanding of our crisis. And so we're, I think we're in a difficult situation, but we have been given intellectual and spiritual giant whose work now we can make available to ourselves that for reckoning with the predicament we're in. Well, I think that's how Rene Girard and how someone even like a G.K. Chesterton, for example, they were able to, it challenged them in their early lives when they looked at literature, when they looked at art, and those popular cultural icons, those types of works that had deeper meanings to them. And they were able to see certain truths and certain movements and things, and then they came out and then they expressed it, why it touches the human heart in certain ways, either for good or for ill. And they were able to distinguish that. And I think that's the importance of looking at those figures who have a gift for that. And you do that, like you said, whether it's Bob Dylan, 
or it's Flannery O'Connor, or even someone who captures the heart and imagination of the world like a Therese. What is it that they're trying to communicate to us? And what is the potential, the beauty, the good, the true, but also the warning that are contained in their expressions of their works? And I think that's what you're trying to do in the book, in each of the many, many chapters that you have on those different type of, whether it's literature or it's prose or again, even in music. And so I I think that is a wonderful way to go about it, don't you? You know, I'm so happy you mentioned Jessica because it reminds me of something that I I think your listeners might be interested in. It's a way of approaching the situation we're in. Von Balthazar, in one of his writings, says to human history after the Christian Revelation, consists of a mutual intensification of the yes and no to Christ. Now, pause and think about that. History after Christ consists of the mutual intensification of the yes and the no to Christ. If that seems to require too much theological sophistication, Bob Dylan said something exactly like that in this 1979 song, God Occurred Somebody, in which he said, it may be the devil or it may be the wolf, but you're going to have to bury somebody. So both the theologian and the and the popular poet listed only two choices. The, the theologian said it's yes or no to Christ, and the, and the, uh, the poet, musician said, we're going to end up serving either the devil or the Lord. Now, where Chesterton comes in is that Chesterton said once that if every, I'm going to paraphrase him because I think it's a little punchier to say that it's like, if everyone lived a thousand years, they would all die Catholic, which, which is the paraphrase of what he once said. And the reason is, I would say, he didn't spell it out, but I'm going to. If we had a thousand years of experience to look back on, we would realize that all the little choices we made along the way were in some small way the yes or the no to Christ or the choice between the devil and the Lord. And then and then we would understand it if we had a thousand years of experience that the drama of history is the mutual intensification of yes and no to Christ. And the implication of that for our, our time and, and thought is that as the world becomes more emphatic in its rejection of Christianity, we have to become more compelling in our defense of Christ and its church. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts? 
like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Show your support for Discerning Hearts by liking and leaving positive reviews on your favorite streaming platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and more, with a collection of insightful podcasts led by renowned Catholic spiritual guides, such as Father Timothy Gallagher, Monsignor John Esseff, Dr. Anthony Lillis, and more. Discerning Hearts is your gateway to a deeper understanding of discerning life's mysteries and growing deeper in your relationship with Christ. Your likes and reviews not only affirm the value these podcasts bring to your spiritual journey, but also help others discover the guidance and inspiration they seek. Share your thoughts, spread the word, and be part of a community that's committed to elevating hearts and minds through meaningful conversations. Your feedback fuels our mission to help others climb higher and go deeper in their spiritual growth. Like, review, and let your voice be a beacon of light for fellow seekers on this spiritual journey. We now return to Inside the Pages. We're talking with Gil Bailey, the author of The Apocalypse of the Sovereign Self, Recovering the Christian Mystery of Personhood. To understand the importance of what it is to be a person, the Church Fathers didn't use that term person. It wasn't used until it was really brought into the context of the Trinity, the three persons, as you pointed out. But what is the Trinity? It's relational. It's a relationship. There's an identity, but it's also in relation. So when Dylan talks about whether you are to serve, you got you got to serve somebody, it's either going to be the devil or it's going to be Christ. Uh-huh. And that entails when you serve, it's going to be relational. You can't get out of it. And to say that I'm, I have this individual autonomy all to myself to do and think the way I want to, it's to negate the relationship. And you can't get around that. But yet that's what the culture is ex- implying, isn't it? It is. And one of the things that's lost in that emphasis on self and self-will is the idea, and this is von Balthasar's great contribution, the idea, the theodrama that we are in, we live dramatically. We're part of a drama that's unfolding. And our task is to live, and our task is to fulfill the obligation that are incumbent upon us as members of the cast. We have to live in such a way that we ourselves and our loved ones and spreading out to those we know or maybe those who just catch a glimpse of us coming out of the church on Wednesday morning and wonder what the heck are people doing in church on Wednesday morning. Whatever it is, we have an obligation to live in the drama on behalf of Christ in this church in whatever way we can, whatever our role in life, our vocation in life, our situation, there's always an opportunity to be an icon of Christ and to contribute to the historical 
feel drama that way. And for years, I've quoted the uh, 13th century Islamic poet Rumi, who said, and I'm going to quote, he said, be like one who, when he walks into the room, luck shifts to the one who needs you. And there's a Christian analog to that, which is, of course, St. Peter, who said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. So we have to be beacons of a hope that may be totally puzzling to others, but if we live in such a way that it's, it's compelling, they will at some point want to find out how we tend to have that hope. And a conversation can be had that could be very fruitful. So we have, we, we live dramatically, not in some self-consciously artificial way, but our lives should be evangelical in the sense that they should, we should be willing and eager to allow anyone who cares to know why it is we had hope even when the situation is, uh, it's never hopeless, but it is as dire as it is today and may very well be more so in the future. But we have, as the, I've been trying to think of a metaphor here, as the house lights go down and the drama on the stage begins, we have to uh, conduct ourselves in ways that others will be availed of the, of the, of the unbelievable gift we have been given, the gift of our faith and the gift of the church. And I think that's, you know, why the book, as you said, is split into the two parts, because in the apocalypse of the sovereign self, and then essentially the subtitle, Recovering the Christian Mystery of Personhood, you have to have in that first half, as you bring forward in the, in the writings of so many, whether it's a philosopher or those who excel, I, I've said it before, in prose or in literature, that kind of through story, through their their stories and or characters, we're able to see glimpses probably of ourselves, no more so than, of course, Flannery O'Connor. You bring up Parker's back, which I was really excited to see because that's one of my favorite stories. A good man is hard to find is that that's a good one. But oh my gosh, Parker's back. You almost see it being played out right now, you know, down the street from people who may not be familiar with the story. And I'll, I'll just say it real quick. It's a young boy is at the carnival or the circus, and he sees the tattooed man completely covered, and he becomes enamored with it, so much so that as he gets older, he goes and he gets his first tattoo, which is of an eagle on a canyon, and it, he loves it. But it only satisfies him for a little bit, so he goes and gets another one. And then before you know it, his entire body almost is covered because he's never satisfied with the image that is put on his body. And so much so that only his unmarked back remains. And you can pick up the rest of the story and why it's well, significant. One of the things, you look at how prophetic was that in the literal sense of tattooing. Yeah, it's a spiritual disorder. I mean, the thing is, that that's what it, it 
It shows that you're trying to get so many things to self-satisfy you and to create an image of you that you're not satisfied. And that's, she's signifying spiritual disorder. And the last thing that remains is his back. His back, and he has to have a a tattoo of God. It's very, very humorous, that whole thing. But, you know, tattooing itself, she was brilliant to see her. Tattooing itself is one interpretation of it. It's an attempt to finally do something that's irreversible in the hope that it will stabilize your existence. And, of course, it's exactly the the last thing you need, but I think it's an unwitting attempt to do something irreversible and therefore to commit yourself to something finally. And that's a Christian longing. It's just a Christian longing that has been perverted. And Flannery O'Connor saw that. So that's a, that's a marvelous story that many of ours are. And just so the listeners out there, if you happen to have a tattoo, no judgments. We're just... Oh, no. We're just bringing forth Flannery O'Connor, okay, and what she wrote in this particular book because of the metaphor contained in it. I have friends and family members with their tattoo. And if I had, I mean, I I, I did a lot of crazy things when I was young about which I'm remorseful. But had I lived 30 years later, I might have ended up with a tattoo myself. I don't know. I'm not given to that. Mm -hmm. Me too. I, I fully recognize that Carl Jung once said, and this has to do with indignation, but it's the same, or applies the same. He said, if, if a wave of indignation sweeps your country, you will probably find yourself among the sweeping. And so if a big fad sweeps your society, you will probably find yourself among the sweeping. So that's just a given of how mimetic we are. But anyway, she saw... I, th- I think what she saw is the, the attempt to, because this was, Parker had resisted his mother's attempt to get him to go to church. And this was his alternative. He wanted to commit himself to something that was entirely of his own Jewry. And uh, and that's, that's part of the mania that's going on in the world today. If you, you, you imitate people, always imitate, but if you have this idea of the autonomous individual, then imitation is very, is is embarrassing. You're not supposed to imitate. So what you do is you imitate somebody, and then you add just a little bit more exaggeration to the imitation, so people won't notice the imitation. So you do the thing itself, and I mean, there's a direct line between the kind of things that Parker did and the transgender those today. You impress me as someone who probably doesn't spend a lot of time on Instagram or on WhatsApp or on TikTok, but that's exactly what's happening too. I mean, that that idea that I'm 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 imitating, but I'm going to do a little more. I got to do it a little different, but I'm imitating. 
And and it's not really identifying as your own personhood, but you're trying to be this attempt to stand out as an individual. You're actually just becoming a part of the, I hate to say it this way, but I mean, it's part of the blob of some type of morphing into something else. And I think that's the the ache in the human heart right now. And we don't see that. It's an ache that only Christ can fill. And you know, there is in all of this a deeply Christian implication because everyone in so many of these ideologies, everyone wants to be or identify with the victim. If I can establish my victimhood either by being a victim or by affiliating myself with victim, I will have a moral privilege. And that is something that could only happen in a world under Christian influence. It was Christ's death on the cross as the supreme victim that made victimhood attractive. And to uh, uh, to be attracted to victimhood for itself, actually, for the wrong, for exactly the wrong reason, to be a victim because you're standing up or speaking for Christ, or whatever, is a very noble thing to do. But to try to worm your way into that privilege by identifying yourself as the victim could only happen in a world under Christian influence in a world that has, that has been to the cross and recognized that the man on the cross is the answer to all our questions. So we're all, we're being, we're imitating Christ in the most bizarre and unhealthy way when we claim for ourselves the privileges of victimhood. We see that, again, if you watch the news, if you, you, you see that, and that collective victimhood. Some, and again, that's different than the self-sacrificing. Sacrificing the self, which is the opposite of being a person in relationship. And that's the door to that, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where the two, uh, the two ideas meet, the self right. and the person. And there's so much more to it. I mean, I I do find your work so compelling, and I enjoyed it so much. And I still, I have to go back and have to reread it because you do bring us to that point. I'm so glad some of my favorite scripture passages just happens to be chapter 37. I live now, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. So you move from that apocalypse, which really, the true meaning of the word is more of a revealing of what's happening to the self, to this point where I live now, no longer I, but Christ that lives in me. And, and of course, that is exemplified by the lives of the saints. You you hear that in the words of the great Carmelites and the Franciscans and the Benedictines and all those who have gone before us in living that out. That's what it looks like. But also in the lives of people like Zelly and Louis Martin and those lay people like uh, John Abredamala, correct? Absolutely. All of it. That Pauline passage is available to us all. And to be that, and to live that way 
is to be is to enter into the theodrama that von Balthar wrote so eloquently about. Well, I wish we had more time. Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, my, here's the final thought. This is the most interesting interview I've had, and it's because my host is completely conversant with the ideas in the book and uh, that are so essential. So it's been such a privilege to, to visit with you and, and to have our, our back and forth together. Well, I, Gil, I feel the same way. I've enjoyed your work in the past in the Cornerstone Forum. I encourage people to check it out if you want to go deeper into, you know, in your quest to try to understand what's happening in our culture, but also what's happening in your own human heart. And I'm grateful for your time today, sir. Well, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, hopefully we'll have more conversations in the future. God bless. God bless. With Gil Bailey, we've gone inside the pages of The Apocalypse of the Sovereign Self, Recovering the Christian Mystery of Personhood. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to angelicopress.org, the website for its publisher, Angelical Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, Visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.